0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples and serving others. Today's the last week of this series that we have called What about where we've been trying to uh, think through work through some of the uh, difficult questions that, can be asked of our faith so that we're, we're able, we're equipped to be able to engage our faith in Jesus with, with every part of who we are. And if you've been with us over the course of this series, you know that uh, for the most part, I'm generalizing a little bit, but for the most part, what we've considered in this series have been questions that I think we could put in the category of being a little more uh, philosophical, uh, for lack of a better word, questions that are directed towards how what is revealed in Scripture intersects with the world around us. In the first week, we considered the, the question that there are the reality, that there are people in the world who have, have not heard the message of Jesus. And In the second week, we considered this idea that God, that God is just, that he punishes sin. Last week, we, we considered the, the claim that, that there is such a thing as absolute truth, and that absolute truth is revealed in Jesus. And I don't want to overgeneralize because at the end of the day, those are all separate questions that require separate responses. But I think it's fair to say that at the end of the day, those questions are uh, taking something that is revealed in Scripture and is then looking at the world around us and wondering if what God's Word has to say is still legitimate in the world that we live in. And for this Week. I, I say all that because I think this week the question is slightly different. Uh, we're still looking at Scripture and wondering if uh, what is revealed there is still true in our world, but it is different in that the question being asked is ultimately not something that has to do with who God is or what Scripture says more so than anything else we've considered in this series. This question has to deal with us. Uh, it's a question, what about... Those who have been hurt by the church. Scripture is clear that God's people, the church, is to be a place where we find healing together. And yet the reality is that the church has not always lived up to this calling. And that's not a new thing that we've discovered in the last few years, but it is something that has been in the spotlight more of late. There are multiple documentaries you can access either over podcasts or or streaming online that are that recount various ministries, leaders, churches who were well thought of in the broader. Christian world, respected across the globe, and yet it has been later uncovered that they were people or they were institutions that were characterized by, by abuse, by manipulation, by arrogance, by greed, by any number of other things that are a far cry from the example of Jesus. And that is simply a reality that we cannot and we should not try to ignore. If we're going to claim to follow Jesus, we have to at the same time acknowledge that there are people in the world who have not lived out that calling well, and the result of that has been people being hurt, having their faith either severely damaged or completely destroyed altogether. And so for our sake, for those of us that are here, and for those who have been hurt who may or may not be here this morning, we need to reflect on this issue so that we can deal with it well, so that we can show that despite how messy and imperfect the church can be, she is still worth it. And I firmly believe that. I love the, the, the Capital C Global Church as a whole. I love this church in particular. I wouldn't be in the line of work that I'm in, in this specific place, if both of those things were not true. I love the church, and I firmly believe based on what is revealed in Scripture and based on my own experience, that she is worth fighting for because she might be messy, but man, is she worth it. And the church is an incredible thing. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is describing how Jesus has come to redeem anyone who would put faith in him and that God's people are invited in to announce that message to the world. And in Ephesians 3 verses 10 and 11, Paul writes that his, meaning God's intent, was that now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's goal is that all of creation might know the wisdom of God, which has been revealed through Jesus, and He intends to fulfill that goal through His church, through people like you and me. Church is an incredible thing. We're not here to drink coffee and eat donuts and see people we like and sing a few songs and hear an inspirational speech that can get us through another week. We are here because God is announcing to the universe that he is bringing healing and renewal and redemption to our world and that one day he will do away with all sin and all death for all time so that his people can dwell in perfection with him for eternity and anyone who trusts in Jesus can experience that life and he is doing all of that through us church is an incredible thing church is an incredible thing and yet the church doesn't always live up to our calling about 30 years after paul wrote the letter of ephesians john writes the book of revelation you might know the book of revelation is addressed to seven churches one of those churches is the church in ephesus And the book of Revelation begins with these short little letters from Jesus to each of those seven churches that John writes down and passes on to them. And the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus begins, as he does in all of them positively, he commends them for their hard work, for their perseverance, for their unwillingness to tolerate false teaching. But he says in Revelation 2-4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first church in ephesus had lost sight of god's calling instead of announcing the message of jesus to the universe they have gotten sidetracked and we don't know all the details but but they've missed it the church is an incredible thing yet we don't always live up to our calling and when that happens people are hurt instead of healed by the church And it can be frustrating to see the ideal of what the church could be and seeing it fall so far short of that calling. And when that happens, maybe we can react in any number of ways, but maybe we just want to give up. It's not worth it. Even if we still want to follow Jesus, we think, I don't need the church, I don't need other people, it can just be me and Jesus, and I can figure it out. Or maybe we don't give up on the church completely. Maybe we just show up, but we don't get too involved. We we just don't want to get hurt again. And so I'll come to church every now and then, but I'm not going to let myself get attached because attachment leads to being hurt. And hear me, I understand fully where that thinking can come from, and I understand that in a lot of situations, giving up feels far easier. And yet... Yet, I think what Scripture says clearly is that when we encounter the mess of the church, the solution is not to give up, but instead to dig deep so that we can be a part of transforming the church into all that God has called it to be. And so to look at that, I just want to look at one passage this morning written to probably the messiest church in the entire New Testament, the church in Corinth. Paul hears of issues... So he writes this letter of 1 Corinthians as an attempt to correct the problems that he has heard about. I want to read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there, may, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Uh, What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so, so none of, no one of you can say that you were baptized in my name. And Paul makes a little aside here. He gets sidetracked. He says, yes, also, I, I, he remembers, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The first issue Paul tackles in this letter to a church filled with issues is this issue of division, and that should tell us something about how significant division is and how quickly it needs to be dealt with. And I should confess that as a church we've been uh, guilty of this in a sense. Uh, Last fall we did a trivia night on a Wednesday night And Isaac and I were putting together all the trivia questions, and Isaac thought it would be fun to have—I say Isaac because I'm trying to blame him, but I was Um, involved—put together one category that was called Monty or Ike. And so we had a a list of questions, and the answer to every question was either Monty or Ike, and Ike thought it would be a good idea that the last question in that list would be, uh, which one of us do you like more? And I can't remember the exact results of that. I do remember, though, that at least one of Ike's kids picked me, so do with that what you will. Um, But that is, I guess, one example of what Paul is describing here, and yet, what is happening in Corinth is not a joke on trivia night. You have one group that's aligned with Paul, and that might make sense. I mean, Paul was the first person to proclaim the gospel in the city of Corinth, Uh, For a number of the people that Paul's writing this letter to, maybe Paul's the first person they ever heard preach. He's the person that explained the gospel to them for the first time. Um, As he says in these verses, he even baptized some of them. There is a group of people who feel very drawn, very connected to Paul. Uh, There's another group of people who are aligned with Apollos. Uh, We're told in the book of Acts that after Paul leaves Corinth, Apollos comes there for a time. We don't know as much about him. We know a few things. He's from Alexandria in Egypt, the, one of the intellectual capitals of the ancient world. He appears to be very uh, well-versed in the Old Testament. He's an eloquent speaker. He is, he, he's uh, brilliant in the pulpit. There's a group of people who feel attached to Apollos. Maybe they say things like, oh yeah, Paul just, Paul just had this simple gospel and, and didn't get all that deep. Apollos, man, what a great preacher. He opened up scripture in a way I've never heard before, way better than Paul ever did. There's a group attached to Apollos. You have a group aligned with Cephas, uh, which we know. Uh, we know him better by his Greek name. Cephas is his Aramaic name. His Greek name is Peter. Which is a little odd because Peter, as far as we know, never came to Corinth. Uh, and so it's, it's odd that he has a, a, a party of supporters here. But Peter's well-known, obviously. Uh, He was one of Jesus' first disciples. He's a part of the inner inner three. Uh, uh, He um, was the first person to make the great confession that Jesus was the Messiah that the Gospels tell us about. He he preaches the first sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I mean, unlike Paul and Apollos, Peter, he was there from the beginning. He was there through all of Jesus' ministry. He, He must have been connected to Jesus in a way that Paul and Apollos never could have been. They came along later. What did they know? You have a group of people who say, I follow Cephas. You have a fourth group that I think we know the least amount about, but they seem to think they've risen above it all. There's all this fighting going on, bickering over whose who's favorite preacher and things like that, but you have this group that says simply, I follow Christ, which is of course the right answer. It's it just, for whatever reason, it seems like maybe they're, they're using this game of one-upsmanship to, to show that they're, they're more well-informed, they know more, they figured it out, they, they know something that no one else does. They follow Christ, and the church is hopelessly divided. And we cannot miss that Paul's solution to all this infighting is to center around Jesus. As great as any individual in the church might be in first century Corinth or today, it is still Christ's church. And Paul drives that point home by calling out the people claiming to follow him. Paul was not the one who died on the cross for their sins and walked out of the tomb three days later. The only only person the church should ever be centered around is Jesus. And when that is lost, the church is in trouble. And people get hurt. Unity is not just a nice thing to aspire to if we can. It is our lifeblood as God's people, and we are in trouble when we cannot find unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The solution to division now, as much as when Paul wrote this letter, is not to just figure out a way to keep the peace. The solution is to recenter ourselves around who Jesus is is and that takes on all sorts of expressions but if if i can try to summarize it at least means that the church is called to make that great confession that christ is lord to be obedient to those two great commands jesus gives us to love god and to love our neighbors and to be and to be participants in the great commission to make disciples of all nations we are in trouble when we lose focus of those things And when we lose focus, we are failing to live out what God has called us to do, and the end result of that is that people get hurt, either because they are a part of that infighting or because they witness it uh, from the outside And and they're experiencing something that is far from the good news of Jesus. And it's not just the problem that Paul had to sort out in Corinth. We can be appalled at what Paul describes in these verses, but it's not like we've moved past this. Human nature hasn't changed much from the first century. We are just as guilty of division today over issues that are not central to the message of Jesus, and that should break our hearts. We have been called to so much more than bickering, and when the world sees infighting and division in the church, we lose opportunities to demonstrate the richness of life in Jesus, and more than that, we wound brothers and sisters we have been called to love. Now, my point in all of that is not that we just have to agree at all costs. Like we covered last week, we believe as God's people that there is such a thing as absolute truth and that 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 absolute truth is revealed in Jesus. There are legitimate reasons to disagree, to have difficult conversations. I'm not talking about watering down the truth. What I'm talking about is when someone encounters individuals or a congregation that claims to be the hands and feet of Jesus but does not look like him, and when that happens, people get hurt. I know someone, not me, who was once taking admission at a high school soccer game, and their high school was playing a Christian school, that day, and uh, there was a parent from that Christian school that showed up. And once they got there to the admission table, they realized uh, that they didn't have any cash and that they were going to need cash to get into the game. The person working the table said, You know, you can, there's an ATM just down the road, you can go get some cash, it's no problem at all. And the person threw a fit, complaining that they weren't going to be allowed into this game, assuming that they should just be let in for free because. They didn't have any cash. And they went so far as to make the statement that if this game was happening at our school, this wouldn't be happening. Now, the person who was sitting at that table taking admission loves Jesus, and I'm grateful for that. But if you can imagine that the person sitting at that table knew nothing of Jesus, had never opened the Bible... And their first exposure to what it looked like to follow Jesus was someone berating them for not letting them into a high school soccer game for free that everyone else had to pay to get into. And in the grand scheme of things, that's a relatively innocent example, but there are plenty readily available to us that are more sinister. My guess is many of us have witnessed others experience church hurt that has turned them off Of following Jesus altogether. Maybe some of us in this room have been hurt by the church to the point where we have wondered whether or not we want to continue to follow Jesus. So what do we say to someone witnessing division in Corinth or someone who's been hurt by the church today? Every situation is different. I can't give you a, a blanket answer, but maybe one of the first things we should say is that church hurt is real. We should acknowledge the church is meant to be a place of healing, and yet that is not always the case. If you've been around here at all, you've probably noticed we, we try to use in our communications with one another this language of family, and that's intentional because, because that's what, what Scripture describes the church as, and yet I, I've been around churches long enough to know that just like how our biological families can cause us pain, so also can our church family. The church has been and is messy. If you don't believe me, you can just keep reading 1 Corinthians. It's a a reality we can't escape, and so it's best for us to not try to cover it up. There has never been a perfect church. In fact, if you ever come across a perfect church, don't join it, because you're going to ruin what they have going. The church has been and is a mess. But before you think I'm being too negative, hear me. When I say that this messiness comes from imperfect people, it does not come from Jesus. I know every situation is different, but it seems like more often than not, church hurt could be avoided if the church had simply been doing what Jesus had called them to do. The reality that the church is messy does not mean Jesus cannot be trusted. It does not mean he is not as good as he claims to be. The reality that the church is messy does not mean we give up. Because if church hurt comes from losing sight of Jesus, then that also means that healing comes from recentering ourselves around the things Jesus has called us to do and to be. And we see Paul flesh that out in more detail over the rest of this passage. I want to read verses 18 to 25. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, Paul quotes from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Human institutions always try to figure out who is the most important, I think there's a part of us that never outgrows being kids on the playground trying to figure out who is the biggest and the strongest our our own successes are ways to demonstrate our superiority we can point to the money in the bank account the cars in the driveway the diplomas hanging on the wall as signs that we are important and should be respected we find meaning in all sorts of of things that try to puff us up we look for Our favorite sports teams to prove that we're more important than people who root for other sports teams, which reminds me, I forgot to mention the St. Louis Blues knocked the Minnesota Wild out of the Stanley Cup playoffs a few weeks ago. I've been meaning to say that in a sermon, haven't got around to it. We have our preferred political parties. Identifying with them proves that we're smarter, we're better than those who support others. Those are the sorts of things happening in Corinth. Every camp has their favorite preacher identifying with them gives them meaning and purpose it demonstrates that they're more enlightened they're more intelligent than those who support others and as they divide up in this way the church looks a whole lot like the world around them every school of philosophy in the ancient world around the church had their preferred teachers and they believed that their teachers were brighter were more enlightened were more intelligent than all the other philosophical teachers of their day The Jewish people felt that they were superior to those who were not Jewish because because they had the Old Testament law, they had the temple in Jerusalem, and the church in Corinth, by dividing up by Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ, they're playing the exact same game. And every time God's people operate by the standards of the world, we lose sight of God's calling. Now, hear me, I'm not saying there's nothing to learn from any book that is not the Bible, but I am saying that God refuses to operate by our standards. The wisdom of the world says to crush your enemies. Jesus says to pray for them. The world says to prove your worth. Jesus says you are worthy because of what I have done for you, and now go serve others. The gospel cuts against the ways of all cultures at all times. The world calls for parties, for campaigning, figuring out who is the best and the brightest. Jesus rejects the notion that the world looks for charismatic leaders with new and exciting messages that can get buy-in from the masses. The gospel succeeds through Jesus being hung on a cross. The message of Jesus always looks like foolishness to humanity. And that foolish message is what we go to to solve our church hurt. While the world looks at the message of Jesus as foolishness, this foolish message, Paul says at the end of this passage, is wiser than the best laid strategies humanity could ever construct. It might not look successful and exciting, but God rejects the premise of the world's measuring stick. When we align ourselves with God's priorities, then the church can be what God has called it to be, a place of healing instead of a place of hurt. When we give up trying to build our net worth so that we can be generous, we embrace the foolishness of the gospel. When we disciple the next generation, instead of enjoying ease and comfort in retirement, we embrace the foolishness of the gospel. When we trust where God is leading after graduation, even if it might not look impressive and lucrative, we embrace the foolishness of the gospel. When we forgive, instead of holding on to bitterness, we embrace the foolishness of the gospel. When we choose to serve, instead of demanding to be served, we embrace the foolishness of the gospel. It might not look like the things the world aspires to, but it is how we heal the wounds of church hurt, and it's how we experience life in God's kingdom. The solution to division and hurt in the church is not to give up. It's found through coming to Jesus and aligning ourselves as individuals and as a community around who he is and what he has called us to be. A group of sinful people in a church building is still a group of sinful people, but when we give ourselves to Jesus, we experience life in his kingdom through the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, Paul's describing the love between a husband and a wife, what a marriage should look like under the lordship of Christ, and And in the midst of all of that, he makes a little digression to explain that it's supposed to look like the relationship between Christ and the church. He says Christ gave himself up for the church. In Ephesians 5, 26, he says that the purpose for this was to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So that she might be radiant, he continues, blameless, without any wrinkle or blemish, and the church is messy. Hear me, and Paul does not shy away from that. Church is messy, but she has been made holy and blameless. We have been made holy and blameless, not because we have cleansed ourselves, not because of anything we have done, but because He was willing to take our faults on Himself. And that's why the church is worth it. For all the faults, whether we read them in news headlines, whether we witness them in our own midst, the church is worth it because we have been made holy. By Jesus. And as a community of believers, we are trying to work out what it looks like to live out that calling together, and we need one another as we do that. We are the bride of Christ. Being a part of the church is not a matter of finding the right congregation that meets all our specific needs. It is a matter of working out what it looks like to walk in relationship with Jesus in the midst of a community of people who love one another and are desiring to do the same. And that might not always be easy, but it is what God has given us to be the means through growing into the likeness of Jesus together. And when we center ourselves around Jesus, we find healing from church hurt. Church is messy, but it's worth it because it's where we find healing. The solution to the mess is not to walk away, but to experience the healing of Jesus within a healthy community so that we might be a part of the solution as we grow into what Jesus has called us to be. We don't come to church. We gather as the church in this space as we demonstrate to one another in our teaching, in our worship, in our life, the healing that is available in Jesus. We don't come into this building to be entertained. We don't come into this building to catch up with people we haven't seen in a week. We don't come into this building to puff up the ego of whoever is on stage. We're not here because you all like me or Isaac or anyone else. We are all here because we believe God has called his people out of death and into life through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he has made us a part of his family, and we want to gather to praise him for what he has done so that we might glorify him as his people. And as we do that, I'm not claiming that Marion has something figured out no other church does. I'm grateful for our sister congregations, the ones that are in this city, in this state, across the country, and across the globe. But what I am claiming is that as we do life together in this family, our heart is that we would be growing into the likeness of Jesus. And it is my hope and my prayer that you would invest in being a part of that. The church as a whole, and this church in particular, might be messy, but it is worth it. And so be a part of it and do not settle for anything less. One of the specific temptations we have in America in the 21st century is the idea of church shopping. And hear me, I fully understand that different people connect with different styles of worship in different ways and prefer different uh, methods of preaching and teaching and things like that, I perfectly understand. I'm not everyone's favorite preacher. I'm not my favorite preacher that's in this room right now, so it's okay. But if we want to live out what God has called us to, we should never settle for bouncing from church to church looking for our needs to be met. The church never has and never should exist for us. We're not called to just look for what church will best meet our needs. We are called to respond to Jesus in a place that loves Jesus and loves one another. And I'm glad that I get to do that here, and I hope you will want to do that here as well. But at the end of the day, this has nothing to do with me or this church, this building. It has to do with responding to Jesus in the way He has called us to respond. When the church is messy, don't give up draw near to Jesus and call those around you to do the same. Whoever you are, whatever your experience has been, that's the application. Draw near to Jesus and call others to do the same. Responding this morning will probably look a little different for each and every one of us. Maybe the response for some of us this morning is to take that step and say, you officially want to be a part of God's people and want to be baptized. Baptized. Maybe responding this morning is to say that uh, you want to officially say that this church is my church family. I want to officially come forward and place my membership as a part of this congregation. Maybe responding looks like stepping into a role of service. You might not know this. On any given Sunday, it takes somewhere around 35 volunteers to make everything we do on a Sunday morning happen. And maybe God's calling you to use your gifts so that you can contribute to the building up of this congregation. Maybe responding this morning looks like repentance. Maybe we need to repent to one another for hurt and division we've caused so that we can bring healing and forgiveness. Maybe we need to repent before God for losing focus from what He's called us to. Maybe we need to respond simply by, by again, affirming our trust in God. No matter where we are who we are this morning, my prayer is that we would all come to terms with what God has called us to do and to be as his church so that we can be a part of bringing life and bringing healing to our world. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have used this message that is foolishness to humanity, the message of Jesus on the cross. To bring us life and healing. To make us your sons and your daughters. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. For the times where we have fallen short of your call. For the moments we focused on ourselves instead of others. For the moments we've chosen selfishness over obedience to you. For the moments we have not lived out what you've called your church to be. We pray for your wisdom and guidance as we walk in faith before you. Father, we earnestly desire to be a people who are seeking you with every part of who we are, so give us wisdom. Be with us, empower us as we we do that in this time and in this place. Not because it will make us look better, not because it will bring fame to us, but so that it might advance your kingdom, as you've called us to do. Give us wisdom as we participate in that mission. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.